This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. I'm Sally Christie and in the cave with me tonight we have Cerise Howard. Hello. Hello Cerise. Hello Cerise. Which is topical to tonight's episode. Is it? I wish I could do a, a Hannibal Lecter voice better but I can't. <laughs> if Paul was here I'm sure he could do it <laughs> but he can't. And we, Cerise, Clarice. Clarice, Cerise. Yeah. Um, and Emma Westwood. Oh, hello. <laughs> How are hello. we both? G'day. <laughs> so on tonight's um, show, we find out that Dame Judi Dench has been up to no good in Red Joan. We'll also find out what compliments some fava beans and a nice Chianti when we revisit Jonathan Demi's classic, The Silence of the Lambs. But first, we are going to make our way over to Italy for the picturesque Happy as Lazaro. So Happy as Lazaro, it's summer in in Violetta, which is a fictional isolated rural estate in Italy, where an extended family of tobacco farmers toil under the rule of the domineering Marchesa, where the hard-working Lazaro, a young man imbued with a saint-like innocence, is both adored and taken advantage of. When the Marchesa's self-absorbed son first visits the fields, he senses an opportunity and embroils Lazaro in an audacious plan to swindle his mother. So directed by Elise uh, Rovaka, I think that's how you pronounce her name correctly. Happy Elise as Lazaro. Rovaka. Oh, Elise Rovaka. Rovaka. Elise Rovaka. <laughs> we should get that on every week's race. Thanks for that, Cerise. <laughs> so Happy as Lazaro has already it screened at Mufia last year, but it has received an immense amount of critical acclaim. It has even been compared to the wonderful works of the incredible Pasolini. Um, Cerise. What? What do you th- what did you uh, think of Happy as Lazaro? Uh, this is a wonderful film. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like a little bit of magic realism, um, uh, which I think this film is if there was a magic realist textbook this would be listed uh in the mm. index i think oftentimes it's um it, there i certainly see why pasolini's name gets bandied around with this sort of um rural presumably southern italian setting um where simple folk um somehow um existing out of time um we don't really know what time this thing is set in at first it's very difficult to to figure it out and because the whole thing ends up playing with time at any rate it all becomes a little academic you might say there's a couple of things that i think hint to certain time and and flip phones and there's yeah there are a couple of indicators of time but nothing's very very specific not really and Mm. and that specificity goes totally wayward later anyway yes um but, uh, yeah, there's this, this whole idea that there might be anybody living in what might be current day-ish. Let's say maybe it's the 90s, something like that, maybe the 80s, um, in a feudal um, uh, relationship with a landowner, um, some well-to-do hoity-toity marquisa or marquise or such with a, a bratty son who goes off the rails and is something of a catalyst for the... For the um, 
uh, a peculiar play with time and indeed space um, as the film switches from a first to a second half which is radically different but actually entirely the same mm. in a way <laughs> if you know what I mean yeah I, I, I was totally captivated by this I just fell into its lovely languid rhythms early on in the piece um, hey that's what tobacco looks like I didn't know did you know what tobacco did looks I. like? I did. Did you? I did. You did. I've spent a lot of time in northeast Victoria. It's dis- disappearing now, but there were a lot of tobacco fields at one stage, and um, they've now been replaced by vineyards. But it's the Italian heritage up there, and tobacco plants are, are spectacular. They're they've got the, the most incredible leaves, and to look at them on mass is incredible. Mm. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I've seen plenty of uh, scenes in cinema over the years of uh, folks in cornfields when i when i think of people being dwarfed by um crops it's usually corn mm. yeah and that's what this reminded me of or when sugar we cane. saw these or crops in here yeah. was that it was especially when we see that scene with lazaro coming up and he's got his um arms full of this stuff that it looks like he's got his arms full of corn yeah mm. um but no nasty nasty tobacco yeah. um but uh, tobacco is seems to be a subsistence crop there and these people are subsisting there's something like 40 odd of them in two 54. buildings 54 54, 54. Yeah. yeah yeah while up on high above in the spectacular landscape there's a, a mansion though it looks like it's beginning to crumble and mm-hmm. some rich folk in there and who uh, their messenger informs the the peasant folk regularly that somehow they still haven't managed to make any money no matter how many hours of work they do and you just think how could this possibly still be happening in what seems like modern dayish times but of course it's a magic realist fable type film so nothing is as it seems anyway and nothing's really actually that much at stake no that said i was still quite moved um though i'm usually very uh, um wary of films where there's just a total rube as the the protagonist think forrest gump or something like that you know, <laughs> you're, you're innocent i mean that that can be a, for me a very distancing um uh, device in cinema because i can't necessarily invest an awful lot in such a character but here um it was just part of the fabric of a peculiar little universe that was quite foreign to me and quite delightful for the most yeah, part. Yeah, I felt that about him as well, that I, I, I really completely agree with you, Cerise, that I am not that invested in that kind of, you know, character, Forrest Gumpy kind of character. <laughs> but, yeah, I think Lazaro was quite lovely and quite charming and he... There's all these... I've been seeing all these kind of parallels drawn between this and Pasolini's work which is definitely evident but he really does look like he could be in Salo don't you think yeah absolutely no I know <laughs> what you mean like he could be one of the boys he's he's I don't really want to quite paint him with that brush, he's quite but, you know, beautiful though but yeah yeah and he's quite and there's a lot of biblical stuff that parallels that are made with him initially with the title the happy as Lazaro I'm Australia, Lazaro. Um, I thought, is this sort of like playing on happy as Larry? Does that translate into uh, Italian vernacular? I'm not sure. But I think that the once the film actually reveals its hand, you realise that it is a more biblical refle- reference, mm. which I think is quite obvious to people as it unfolds. But there's also a Christ-like quality 
with him right from the start where he even carries his grandmother. It's almost like a, a reverse Pieta. I think that's the, the first that thing that he gets asked to do, isn't it, that he's yeah. asked to carry his grandmother and that's how we're introduced to him as an audience. Mm, mm. And and the role that he plays, um, he's kind of a, a facilitator of a number of things and um, he's a hard worker yet he's dumped on. Yet it's all like it's it's water off a duck's back. And I guess, yeah, he is the, the simpleton yeah. as such, but um, there's something incredibly endearing about him. He does, uh, I think this is a debut role for that actor from what I, I from what I read. Um, and uh, yeah, I, like you guys, I found it remarkably compelling. I came into it not looking at much or reading much about the film, seeing the key art, which is very interesting because the key art of this looks sort of like it's a Wes Anderson film. I That was about as much as I knew going into this film as well was yeah. looking at the art and I completely agree that it does look like a Wes Anderson yeah, movie. It does. Yeah, it does. And I think it takes a while before we get those indicators of time with a more of a, a Motorola Nokia-like flip phone. So it doesn't feel like it's a smartphone time. But it, it before that, it does feel very feudal. It feels very medieval. Um, and even in the way they have a sort of um, a very raw edge to them, shall we say mm. you know they're not educated and and it's very hard to place where this is and you just kind of but then this this film just erupts from that bubble and mm. goes somewhere else that is definitely a very strong commentary i think on europe not just italy but europe now and this idea of being one or two paychecks shall we say it doesn't use paychecks in this context but the context but paychecks away from being something else and having your your life turned upside down mm. um and it does move out of the environment where it starts i don't want to kind of reveal it i feel that it's a beautiful unfolding that's really quite spectacular yeah i thought that too and yeah. also like speaking of time placement obviously we look for technology as a way to place time mm-hmm. when we're looking you know at cinema we've both we've all talked about the flip phone here that happened with one particular character mm-hmm. and but also i think that his outfits go further back than that so we look at this character which is like um the tobacco i guess you know baroness's son she uh, he is initially he looks like he's kind of dressed as Michael Jackson from Thriller at one point when we're first introduced to him. He had almost, you know, really 80s clothing and then it, that's commented on, oh, I like, I like your jacket, I like your red jacket, which looks like Michael Jackson's Thriller jacket. And then the next time that we see him with his flip phone, he's got... Um, almost MC Hammer happy pants on from the early 90s. So I think that there's this real kind of playing with audience and what where we're meant to be placed by looking at these, um, you know, things that are on this one particular character in this film who, you know, ages yeah. at one point. Yeah. She also works with so many characters in this film. There's mm. like, and they're so vividly drawn. There's an element of that I felt as it moved into the second half of the film that I may have um, not identified who was from the first half of the film, but I think I got the important ones, yes. let's just say. But I would love to watch it again. I think I would get 
a lot out of it by watching it a second time. Mm. I was totally captivated. I thought it was amazing. I, one thing that I, I really liked from the get-go with this film was the humour that came through with it with their little sense of community that they were, you know, they were in this really quite, you know, difficult. They're being exploited. They're not getting a wage. Um, but there's still this beautiful humour that was going, you know, throughout their yeah, family. absolutely. And that, that they were, they had this sense of humour and this, um, and they was, you know, this idea of bucking, you know, authority, despite the fact that they seemed to have no choice or they had no knowledge of anything beyond and there was a one point which i thought was really important and talking about the biblical aspects of it where someone literally walks on water for them that shows shows that that it can be be done it can be done which was so powerful Mm -hmm. amazing scene and when everyone watches it they will see what we mean (laughs) i actually i haven't seen any of the director's prior films i haven't have you three i don't believe so no no no. And now I'm incredibly yeah, so intrigued. Yeah, I'd I, I would really know. like to see um, what else she has done. Well, it's such a very accomplished film. It's uh, she great command over atmospherics. It was a lovely grain to the yes. image. So I'm presuming it was shot on film of some description, unless it was just very uh, assiduous use of a, a filter of some sort. But it looked... I think this helped with the Pasolini-esqueness as well. Mm. It looked like film. It looked yes. like somebody trying to recreate a medieval atmosphere Um of Pasolini's era, which was very much the film era, and it just uh, I think helps make that seem real. Even though there are hints, even early on, that there's something a bit magical some, about about this very real seeming world. Um, that it's almost as if they can that these peasant folk can harness the wind. It seems at one point, and they actually play a little prank. It seems yeah. on, <laughs> on the um, the young marquis, um, which is but it. Did anything actually happen? It was as wonderfully enigmatic as yeah. to whether they actually have any power to somehow uh, tap elemental forces for just little pranks. I don't mm. think anything eventuated from that, but it did come up time and time it again. Did. Yeah, it did. <laughs> and really the wind sounded wonderful mm-hmm. in this film across yeah. that extraordinary landscape. Um, almost lunar as was pointed out at, yep. at one point. It was Yeah, it was a southern landscape as well as what you said. Cerise, it it definitely has, because I think we're so used to being presented as the idealistic uh, Italian um, pastoral Tuscan, you know, Mm. uh, landscape. And and this wasn't. It was really arid and it was really harsh. And that's what you get as you go further south. The rural town where it is said is called, I think it is pronounced, Invalata, which is fictional. And that term means uh, virginal, untouched. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it is a completely yeah, fictional Like our town. man Lazaro, who mm. was himself born of you know, what parentage? He it's doesn't all... know. He knows his grandmother, yeah. but that's it. He doesn't know a parent. I mm. don't... I, I, it's a very strange um, correlation to make, but for some reason there was something about this film, I guess in its unfolding, the way it revealed its hand, that reminded me of Shoplifters, the Coriator film. Um, Just by the the surprise of who the people are, I guess, and and from a completely different cultural perspective. Mm but it had the same revelation. It had the same level of excitement and and the same level of despair, I guess, well, with, with it as well. Yeah, actually, in, in, with that second half, it does seem like the family that grifts together sticks together. Yes. It did have that same yep. sort of weird 
moral, you could say. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're an extraordinary family unit. Neither half of the film. Um, yeah, it, it 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 seemed like such a convincing uh, possible world, and it was impossible. And yet, yeah. Yes, yet impossible. <laughs> or is it? Or is it? Discuss. Discuss. Yeah. <laughs> you can, you can decide for yourself. Happy as Lazaro is currently screening at all good independent cinemas. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. The Silence of the Lambs. Um, which is our retro pick for tonight, and in fact, my retro pick. Um, I feel like most people are pretty aware of this film. It's definitely not an obscure film or a film that hasn't been seen. But for those of you that may not be familiar with The Silence of the Lambs, um, the story goes FBI agent Jack Crawford wants Clarice Starling, a top student at the FBI Training Academy, um, who's played by Jodie Foster, to interview Dr Hannibal Lecter played by Anthony Hopkins. Hannibal Lecter is a brilliant psychiatrist who is also a violent psychopath, serving life behind bars for various acts of murder and cannibalism. Crawford believes that Lecter may be able to provide insight into um, who active serial killer Buffalo Bill is and that Starling may be just the bait to get the information from Lecter that he needs. Um, So released in 1991, The Silence of the Lambs took home Oscars for Best Picture, Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Actress in a Leading Role, Best Director and Best Adapted Screenplay. It's firmly cemented itself in pop culture, as various sequels, TV show, the list goes on and on. Um, for our retro films so far, we I think that we've kind of picked ones that maybe aren't so well known. Like I said, this film is very, very well known. Um, I picked this just because I simply, I love this film so much and it was one of the films that I think that genuinely made me love cinema. Uh, Emma, how did you feel revisiting The Silence <laughs> of the Lambs? I had a ball revisiting Silence of the Lambs. I remember at the time when it came out, though, I was um, – I liked it. I did like it, but I was in my contrary phase. Tell us about that. Well, what I was there? a teen. I was a bit older <laughs> than you. So I was like it wasn't as hard-assed as Lucio Fulci films or – and the fact that everyone was riding on the bandwagon, I was like, oh. So you were like me when I would only listen to Sisters of Mercy and exactly. nothing else when I was 15. <laughs> exactly. So it was the contrary teen years yeah. when I was like, oh, I prefer Brian Cox as Hannibal Lecter in Manhunter. <laughs> that was that was basically what I was going through. But um, it's a film that uh, over the years that I have revisited um, a few times, actually probably more than I realised because re-watching it, it was incredibly familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, but po- possibly it's familiar also because it's become the stuff of parody, really. The the lines, fava ve- beans and Chianti and all that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that's uh, taken on a new life or taken on a different life beyond its, its cinema life. Uh, but I think what strikes me about it and especially as a a massive academy award winner i mean as a horror movie 
um, especially, it won a lot of um, a lot of awards. It was built as a thriller, though. Wasn't it was it? built as not, a not a horror. Yeah, <laughs> a horror couldn't win exactly. awards. Exactly. Oh, and except for The Exorcist, yep. but that was a long time before that, and maybe at a time when cinema was, and a whole lot of things around cinema were a little bit more adventurous. But um, I found that it's really a big budget exploitation film, and mm. I think that's kind of the the thing that stands out the most about it: the sensationalism of this film there's also a a thing about Demi's um Demi's direction that me and my husband when we watched it were were noting which I hadn't really noted before which is he really has the actors barrel the lens like they look straight down the lens a number of times which is usually seen as a a no-no in cinema but is actually a stylistic um a notable stylistic point in this film well I think that Jodie Foster was saying that her and Anthony Hopkins didn't even meet each other till the film was wrapped pretty much because pretty much every scene that they had done together was, you know, straight down the lens and they weren't even interacting with each other and that both actors <laughs> were petrified of the other and it brings about this amazing chemistry between them but they're not even interacting with each other there. It's a very... Mm. It's it's really unusual. I think that it's a type of film... I wonder if it would win an Academy Award now. I'm not sure. And that's not saying that cinema's got better by any means. It's just the different climate. Um, but it's, it's, it's thoroughly enjoyable by while being quite confront, confrontative mm. at the same time. I think the end... I love the end where he disappears off into the distance. I don't feel like I'm really um, ruining the experience for no, anyone by I, I saying feel, that. I feel like everyone is familiar with this yes. film or at least it's kind of I mean I'm not saying it's as iconic as Psycho but I feel that you can really talk about Psycho and know that people are familiar with it and I feel yeah. that you can do the same thing we with Sides and Lambs. I think that I mm. would have liked to have heard there's a song that's played over it. I can't remember whether I think it might be the actual orchestral score over it but I would have liked to see him go off in silence with just the street noise. I think that would have been much more impactful. And with a lamb. And with a lamb, a lamb, carrying a lamb. That's the one big letdown of this movie, isn't it? There's no lamb. There's no so lamb. Not Spoilers. one lamb. Yeah. Not one lamb. It's funny you mentioned Psycho, Sally, because this is a film often bundled in with that in terms of being a film where any uh, gender variant people are um, insane, basically, mm-hmm. and murderous. And um, you know, it's one of the... Uh, there, there are quite a number. For a while representation on screen of any folk of uh, gender diverse nature were either murderers or going to be murdered or, or both mm-hmm. and this is William Castle's homicidal jumps to mind jumps jumps <laughs> yeah a lot of Castle's films are sort of jumpy things aren't they um this yeah psycho is the sort of the the granddaddy or grandmummy or both of, of, of <laughs> that genre uh, a convention something that sort of became cast in uh, it just became a, a trendsetter, actually. That, that this, I, I don't know if there was a huge amount of it in cinema before then, but because that film was such a sensation, um, and the whole idea of uh, someone not being uh, a trustworthy human type uh, by dint of being a gender variant or changeable, think of how, how big the crying game was in its day, not because that character was necessarily... Um, murderous, but just the, the whole idea of a gender being something it was just still very new and that, that was the, the big secret you had to keep mm. as an audience What's interesting member. is when The Crying Game came out, I was a pretty young child at that time 
but I was really aware about all the gender stuff that was going on in it because, you know, it was what my parents were talking about, it was what their friends were talking about. So, yeah, it was... It was a reveal, Mm. it was a secret. It was this idea of deception, which Mm. is a really interesting thing because really, who cares? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, it's... um but you know, the more that uh, trans and gender diverse people have become more visible in society, the more that more positive representations have been craved. I find myself in an interesting position as a, a member of that community where I wish to see more trans killers uh, in, on screen uh, in as much as I dream of a utopia whereby no one needs positive representation to bolster their yes. sense of um, uh, self mm. and esteem. But um, that is actually quite utopian as well. And there's an awful lot of people of all sorts of stripes who um, just are craving to see something of themselves uh, in a positive light. Mm. This was not that film for trans people circa no. what, 91 or so when it came out. Yeah, it was 91. And there was also there was a lot of um, protests around this film when it came out for that, that reason. But it's really mm. interesting just watching... I. I watched about 45 minutes of it really hastily before coming into mm-hmm. the studio this evening and this film is so um uh concerned with gender i mean um mm-hmm. clarice's vulnerability and her femininity is at the forefront of the, that first 45 minutes at least she's constantly surrounded by men who are constantly ogling her it's even within the first 45 seconds of yeah. the film there she hops in an elevator like an elevator yes. and she's this tiny tiny woman mm. that is being surrounded by these tall men kind of yep. leering at her and they're all uniform as well yep. they are just this yep. uniform mass of mm-hmm. bland masculinity that mm-hmm. is all instantly threatening and uh, the look up and down there's yeah. a lot of that look up oh, and down yeah it's, and um, you know, she's considered, it, it, was, it proves to be a ruse, but this idea that she, she's a, a woman, so she should not be privy to the gruesome um, nature of uh, the wounds inflicted upon her body when she visits, um, uh, I suppose it's a morgue where there's a funeral mm. happening early on there. But of course, she is there for her forensic know-how and they just have to get rid of the, uh, the yokels who wouldn't... Who'd, think that that's a woman's place to be so there's a huge amount of gender politics that's actually super uh forefronted in the in this film which does make me pretty keen actually to go uh, when i get home to, to watch the rest and see how i read the rest of it now, now are you watching this yeah. and this is a film that i like I, I i do watch quite frequently but this recent watch that was what was really most apparent to me was the gender politics in this movie more so than I've ever read it that way before. And it was interesting that I saw Jodie Foster, like a very recent sort of interview with her talking about that. And she was saying that she really fought for this role. She even, she'd read the book and she wanted to direct the film, but found out the rights had been bought. Gene Hackman was originally going to direct the film. It was going to be his directorial debut, but then said it was too gruesome for him to do. So then it went to Jonathan Demme and um, Jodie Foster was the second choice. But her reasoning, she clearly loved the original text, but that she really wanted to do this was because of the gender politics in the film and that she'd come from doing um, films where she was a victim all the time. Mm. Um, I think that she'd won an Academy Award for the accused just prior to this. Yeah, and a couple of I years mean, earlier. You know, she had Taxi Driver and she said that she felt that her entire career was built on playing a victim. Um, yeah, even as a child. Yep. Yes. Uh, from, yeah, yeah. Three, yeah, she was saying from, you know, three years old when she started in the industry and that was why this role of Clary Starling was so important to her um, to kind of combat 
that and be able to sort of take charge of gender in that way where there she was doing something important with her gender regardless of her she said you know the the sound of her voice the size of her body all that kind of stuff which yeah I thought was very interesting and I hadn't really looked at this film in that way before but it became really apparent to me this time I think that uh what I noticed with it uh that I thought it was really quite apparent in watching it this time, maybe in a whole new light, was that um, they made a point of saying, actually saying that uh, Buffalo Bill, who is the central killer, even though Hannibal Lecter is a killer, uh, was not actually transgender. And they made that point. They said that he thought he was transgender and he thought he used that, he felt that that made him special that he wasn't actually he was using that as an excuse which I thought was a really interesting thing in itself I mean is that actually a diagnosis I don't know but maybe it was partly the filmmaker's way of trying to excuse themselves from creating a a trans killer film yeah, I think Jonathan Demme definitely did try to use that as a way to excuse himself from this but i I don't know. I don't. I don't feel like that's something I can really comment <laughs> yeah. on. I just don't know. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But it is. You. It's. It's a very interesting. It's strangely considering it is a serial killer film. It's an easy watch. It's something that really rollicks along. It has a number of um, stylistic stuff that I think that is quite. Um, strong where that when they take the photographs of the the body when they do that, that kind sound. of that sound that's you know, great the, the the sound of the flash yeah. kind of reminds up. me of texas chainsaw massacre yes exactly yep. mm-hmm. exactly yep. and then they actually echo it if i remember correctly uh when he when he turns on his night vision um when he's stalking Clarice in the the house mm-hmm. so it's a r- sort of recall to that just really interesting things that I've never seen like where they put the the that um obviously that strong lotion the two sort of it's almost like a mustache under their nose where they go to look at the body so that they don't smell it it's they're, they're very strong. It's very strong imagery that um, I've carried with me, and I think a lot of people have carried over a long time. I'd be interested to see to know how someone responds to the film watching it for the first time now. Mm. Let's just say I, I feel like it's still really well received by young audiences that are sort of seeing this for the first time. I've really. <laughs> vividly remember seeing this film for the first time when it came out on VHS and I was probably about six and we watched it as a family but you know I was, I was the youngest and my parents my parents viewing. were quite quite loose with what I saw a lot of it went over my head but I even remember being that little and you know being really engaged by this and I definitely every time I see this there's I, I just it's thoroughly enjoyable for me like every single time and you know I feel that kind of roller coaster that Clarice is going on every time like I just I adore it well it, it, it gets you in there very early on those early um, training sequences those montages it's I mean it could be rocky it yeah. could be it really it? could yeah, yeah. The, the military type uh, drilling um, yeah and it, it's just shot with great dynamism Mm. And, and cut with great dynamism. It really flows. And it, it, you're actually there. Uh, 
her first encounter with Lecter is really, really soon. The film wastes yes. no time. Mm-hmm. So, um, I think he's only in it for about 14 minutes all up. Something like that. It's quite a short amount of time. Although spread across the yes. film. So uh, if you wish to see Silence of the Lambs for the first time or you wish to revisit it, it is currently streaming on Stan. Three. Triple. Ah. Our final film that we are going to be discussing this evening is Red Joan. In a picturesque village in England, Joan Stanley, played by Dame Judi Dench, lives contented in retirement. Then her suddenly tranquil existence is shattered as she's shockingly arrested by M15. Joan has been hiding an incredible past. She is one of the most influential spies in living history. Um, Cerise. What? What did you think of Red Joan? I I, I haven't seen it, so uh, I'm, I'm relying on you and Emma to let us know how Red Joan was. Well, I saw it on Saturday night in a mm-hmm. cinema full of people who were somewhere between one and a half and two times my age, and that was the <laughs> age group. That was age appropriate for this. It so is, isn't it? Yeah, this is such um, uh, a, a, well, especially of a. a a British, a BBC quality drama loving type audience. This is that film. This is that Cold War film. Mm, Midsummer Night's Murders audience. Something like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, it's perfectly agreeable. It's still cin- cinematic. Still mm-hmm. cinematic. Okay. Well, not mm. tremendously. No, not <laughs> tremendously, but it didn't feel like, um, say, a Midsummer Night's Murder on mm. the TV. Mm. I mean, I could still have taken a scone into the cinema and felt that wasn't <laughs> out of place. <laughs> I mean, this film, it was interesting. It, it, it purports at the outset that it's inspired by a true story, which isn't mm. not based on one, but inspired by one, which is to say that this is there's no truth in this story, really, mm-hmm. which is a shame because then it would actually... I think I would have invested more interest in it because I knew nothing. I would have gone, I know nothing of this story. How did I never hear of this yeah. particular caper? But well, it's a big. It is a big story. It you, is. I don't know of the correlations with reality either. Did you find even out about seeing that? A, a trailer and it said I was like, "How have I never heard of yes. this?" Yeah, fibs. okay, it's fibs. fibs. All right, porkies, fibs. Yeah, mm. but it's still. It's, it, well, it, it, this is kind of most successful, I think, as Cambridge porn. If you ever had a, a thing for Cambridge <laughs> University and wanted to, just... that's not the kind of porn that I yeah. want to be. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, hang on. Cambridge and Oxford porn, I can totally come to the party with. All right. Emma's there. <laughs> Emma's there. I'm not. You'd like to expand on that, Emma? <laughs> well, these beautiful <laughs> institutions and these beautiful, I was going to say beautiful erections. That's a, Maybe that's, that's the That's a Max one. Hedrum episode yeah. for you, Cambridge and Oxford Carry on, Cambridge. <laughs> <laughs> Strange that that never happened. <laughs> Uh, look, I, I don't regret having seen this, but really this is a very by-the-numbers Cold War drama. Uh, James Doody... James Doody? <laughs> James Judy's, uh, as, a, as a younger... Cerise. Dame Doody. Dame Doody. My heart's not really into talking about this, is it? It's, it's hard to um, give this a lot of gusto. Look, Sophie Cookson as the young Joan... 
was gorgeous. Acquitted herself very well. She was very um, I, I, look. She was actually quite captivating. I found. Yeah. And there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of for those essential young youngsters of mm. the film. There were a lot of close ups, and uh, you know they were a comely bunch. Yes, they were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know why uh, we've got all giggly s- uh, straight away with this know, film, but anyway. There was actually a masterpiece of cinema excerpted in this for a, a few minutes, weirdly. Uh, so Battleship Potemkin is watched by this film society at Cambridge University, which is just a, a, a breeding ground for communists. And uh, they're all watching it in silence, which is bonkers. Yes, it's a silent film, but no one watched silent films silently. In and silence. this is... it's. And, and then someone rubbishes the they film. They dump on it. Is, That's they, what I was going to say. Going, You've got no sense of perspective whatsoever. <laughs> Maybe it's a little joke. I, I Surely. That was unmistakably Battleship Potemkin. Yeah. It's going, yeah. come on. Uh, but, uh, look, this is just a daft film. When I, when I think of something, uh, a, a British film handling, let's say, vaguely related matters, like the recent death of Stalin, which is an incredibly edgy and... and sometimes quite troubling film I think yes that's how to go about it Mm -hmm. this is just this is um yeah this is really for the uh, an older generation than me I I found this film had no bite at all no edge it was just perfectly pleasant yeah perfectly pleasant though I think is sometimes what some people will want from a film at certain times so I feel that well, my mother expressed an interest in seeing this film and I, I, I feel quite confident in recommending it to her. And it's not going to challenge anyone in any way. Um, it's a, this really weird cult of Judy Dench as well that I find that I don't really understand the veneration of Judy Dench. She always seems to play Judy Dench to me. Um, bless her heart, she has had an incredible career. So let's just, you know, Emma shut up basically. But... Um, yeah, it it is. It's a film that uh, take the, the the look. It's very strong in its narrative. What how true it is when we're not entirely sure. It's not true. It's not true. It's a um, because she gave away the secrets to the atomic bomb to Russia. <laughs> how that is pretty big news. If we, I feel that we would have heard about that. Well, mutually assured destruction. That was her doing. Her, apparently, yes, yes. Mm. Um, so that's pretty large, let's say. But um, it's something that the filmmaking does not distract from the narrative, shall we say. It does unfold as a very, you know, tight narrative and it, and it works as a tight narrative. But in often when you're playing with uh, real events, you can't have a nice three-act structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one is. There's, there's intrigue in it, but I also found it just amounted to nothing. I didn't care if someone perished, uh, you know, if there was some sense of foul play that you know, some of them couldn't be trusted. There were double agents. I mean, it just didn't matter. It just didn't have the atmospherics. It, it didn't cut through somehow. It was just too pleasant for me to get really somehow brought into it <laughs> and really embroiled. Pleasant. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that too. I'm like, mm. if, if you are feeling like you want a, a pleasant film and a, a, a Devonshire tea. And a cup of tea cup of, of tea. a film. Mm. And Judy And Judy and Dench. Judy Dench. Yeah. Red Jones currently screening at All Good Independent Cinemas. You've been listening to Plato's Cave on 3RRR with Cerise Howard, Emma Westwood and myself, Sally Christie. 
On tonight's show, we have discussed Happy as Lazaro and Red Joan, which are both screening at all good independent cinemas. We also revisited The Silence of the Lambs, which is streaming on Stan and I imagine pretty accessible elsewhere. In the cave next week, we will be looking at Wild Rose, not the Nick Cave song, but the new film about country and Western music, so I think it's something very different. <laughs> the Perfection, which I think uh, is a Netflix new Netflix release. Yep. Yep. yep, yep. And our retro film that we will be looking at is the late and great Agnes Varda's Cleo from 527. You can subscribe to Plato's Cave podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. We also have our track listings up on the plate on the Triple R website. Should be up in I think probably about half an hour. A huge thank you to Faith Everard for editing tonight's podcast, and to Carl Chapman for panelling, and Lisa Kovacevic for producing the show. This has been a podcast from Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.